0: Well, as I mentioned earlier in the service, we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning, so I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 2. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, it's found on page 398, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20, we'll be looking at. Well, the world around us that we live in is full of mysterious realities, isn't it? And oftentimes, in that mystery, we find two things that we run across that are both true at the same time, and yet... Appear to contradict each other. So for example, scientists have taught us that light is made up of both waves and particles at the same time. So we have light waves and light particles. Two things that seem to contradict each other. How can light be both of those things at the same time? And yet it is. The scientific reality seems to contradict itself. There are other examples of this. Such as how our universe is limited by both time and space. And yet, no one has ever been able to reach the physical, spatial edge of the universe. But all of us every day feel the limits of time. Two things that are both true that somehow seem to maybe contradict each other. A lot of these things are mysterious beyond our ability to truly understand them. The book of Nehemiah, the story that's laid out for us, presents us with two very important biblical truths that are both entirely true and yet appear to contradict each other. Those two truths that we see running throughout the whole book of Nehemiah are the divine sovereignty of God and human action, human activity. You see, Nehemiah, when we look at this book this summer, what we see is we see a worldview that places God right at the center Of everything that happens in this world. And at the same time, in Nehemiah, we see a person who feels that his actions are absolutely necessary to bring about God's work in this world. The divine sovereignty of God and human action and participation. Two seemingly incompatible truths... And those two truths will run through Nehemiah like cords that are kind of roving through each other, wrapped around each other throughout this entire book. I want to just briefly show you, so far in our series, how we see these two things being played out. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look at chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 4, which Todd preached on last week. You see that Nehemiah, when he prays, he prays not just to any god or a god, But he's praying to the God of heaven. Both times when he's praying there. And then in verse 11 of chapter 1, Nehemiah is underlining for us that he was the cupbearer to the king, strategically placed in this important position by God. In chapter 2, verse 9, Nehemiah explains that the good hand of God was upon him. And so it's like the theological heartbeat of this letter God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It's beating over and over and over again. So it's almost as if Nehemiah, what he does is he takes us behind the curtain of a magic show. And he says, here's how the magic tricks work. And when he takes us behind the curtain, what we see is that the God of heaven is sovereignly working over everything. He is not distant. He is not far off. And in fact, in him we live and move and have our being is the words we affirmed at the beginning of our time together this morning. And while God is sovereign in this world, which Nehemiah expresses, he also shows us that God's sovereignty is not at loggerheads with human activity and participation. See, in the person of Nehemiah, we see a man whose deep and expansive view of the sovereignty of God He knows that nothing is random, nothing's by chance. This this deep, expansive view of the sovereignty of God doesn't paralyze him. In fact, the sovereignty of God frees Nehemiah. It's a freeing thing for him. Sometimes we can think that the sovereignty of God, the fact that God controls all things, is an excuse for us just to say, well, it doesn't really matter what I do or don't do. God's plans are just going to happen no matter what. Not for Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows that the sovereignty of God is not a paralyzing thing. It is actually a freeing thing for him. God is sovereign. And yet there's human responsibility and action. So this morning as we look at these verses in chapter 2, we're going to explore how Nehemiah's expansive view of God frees him to plan and participate with God in the face of opposition. That's what uh, these few verses are about. Nehemiah is planning and participating with God in the face of beginning opposition. And so tucked in this incredible narrative, I hope that you're captured just by the narrative of Nehemiah itself. And tucked in this little narrative are at least three things we're going to learn about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. They've been really meaningful to me this week as I've looked at these things, and I trust they'll be meaningful to you as well. The first is in verses 9 to 16. So let me read for us 9 to 16 of chapter 2. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. Then I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles and the officials and the rest who were to do the work. Well, let's look at this together. Verses 9 and 10, what we see is that Nehemiah has left Susa And he travels to the province beyond the river. Now the distance, the physical distance between Susa and the province beyond the river was roughly 750 miles. So in a car, you're going to take a road trip. that would take us maybe 10 hours, depending on how fast you drive. But on a horse, of course, it's going to take much, much longer and be much, much more painful. If you ever experienced the aches and pains of a long road trip, getting out of the car after a few hours... The aches and pains of riding on a horse for 750 miles would have been much worse. It's nothing compared to that. This is a long way from Babylon. And and on his way, he's being escorted, it says, uh, by a convoy of the the king's officers and the horsemen. And he enters into the province beyond the river. And he delivers these letters of recommendation that the king had written for him. And gives them to the governors. Most likely, the characters of Sanballat and Horonite, verse 10 were some of these ruling governors of the province who these letters were delivered to. The content of these letters we know is in verses 7 to 8 of chapter 2. So we know what's in the letters. You can look at that with me. The letters there from the king granted Nehemiah permission to be in the province beyond the river. But more shockingly to Sanballat and Horonite, the letters actually gave Nehemiah access to the timber of the king's forest. And enough timber to build the city wall and to build his own house. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're greatly displeased by this. The text tells us they're displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. The word welfare is actually the word shalom. Now if you know the word shalom, shalom actually refers to the, not just to the absence of conflict, but to the presence of health and wealth—it's it's, a—it's a word that describes wholeness and fullness. So the lack of shalom meant to mean deflated and dejected, lacking health. The best way I can imagine it in my mind is the difference between an inflated basketball and a deflated basketball. My boys at home love to play basketball, and whenever the basketballs are deflated, they come running to me, Dad. The basketball is deflated. I push it on the ground, and it just just flat. They want me to restore it to full health, to, to pump it up. That's what the word shalom means. It's this fullness, health. The people of Israel were like a deflated old basketball. And Sambalad and, and, uh, and uh, Tobiah here, they're upset that someone had come to, to restore this welfare to Israel. They would have been happy for Israel to remain deflated. And for their city to remain in ruins and just wrecked. The reason is that their continual oppression and their continual just kind of pushing down meant that the nation of Israel would not be a threat to King Artaxerxes. So, as long as they're a nothing nation, the reign of King Artaxerxes is is fine, it can continue on. So, they want the people of God to remain beaten down, downtrodden, a laughing stock. And so we see that there's this opposition almost immediately when Nehemiah gets there. But the opposition that's mounting kind of in the background is really only known to us as the readers. Because the people of Israel, they don't even know that Nehemiah is there. There's clueless as to what he's doing there. And so we know this opposition is mounting. It's going to be further explained in chapter 4 next week. But there's this opposition growing. And, and so in verses 11 to 16, what Nehemiah does is he privately inspects the ruins. If you look over at verse 3 of chapter 1, what we see in chapter 1, verse 3, is that Nehemiah has only heard about the destruction. He heard it from his brother Hanani. He hasn't actually seen it with his eyes. And so when he travels there, he investigates. He inspects everything secretly. He looks at the destruction for himself. And I love this scene in verses 11 to 16. I think I love it probably because I've seen one too many movies that have warriors going into like a battle scene and inspecting things. But my imagination, my imagination kind of takes over at this point. And so in my mind's eye here, I picture Nehemiah in the darkness of night. It's repeated three times in these few verses. That everything he's doing is in the night. So, it's a reference to it's being done secretly. But here I picture, picture Nehemiah in the darkness of night, and he, he puts his cloak over his head to disguise himself. And he jumps up on his horse and he darts through the city of Jerusalem. There's nobody around, there's no sounds except for the sounds of his horse hoofs pounding on the streets, on the rubble. No sound except for the snorting of his horse. I can see the steam coming out of the uh, the horse's nostrils as the horse tries to catch its breath from darting around. I can hear Nehemiah's leather gloves squeezing together on the reins of the horse as he he goes to the, the valley gate and the dragon spring and he checks out the sewers. That's the dung gate. He goes everywhere. And at one point, you can see in verse 14 that he has to get off of his animal because there's no room for the animal even to pass. The place is a wreck. And so he, is, he inspects it quietly all around. And he goes through the eastern portion of the city and down the southern portion. He actually doesn't even make a full circle around the whole city. The places that he mentioned that he goes to are just in certain locations. But Nehemiah has seen enough. I often wonder what type of emotions were racing through Nehemiah's veins at this point. We know from chapter 1 that when he heard about all the wreckage, he was mournful and he was weeping, he says, for days in verse 4. And for four months, his sorrow was building and mounting to the point where he could no longer hide it from the king. But now as he observes it with his own eyes, I wonder if those emotions of weeping and mourning and sorrow turn into intense drive and passion. No longer sad, but now it's time to get after the work. So he gains this realistic perspective of the work that needs to be done and his belief in God's leading hand increases and his desire to rebuild the walls, reaches a level of urgency and immediacy. Most of us will never forget when President Bush visited the scene of the Twin Towers after 9-11. You might remember the President Bush visiting there, and uh, he's not necessarily in a tie and a suit, but he's got a jacket on, and he t- climbs up on top of the rubble with a megaphone. And he addresses the workers, encouraging them that we're going to rebuild, and we can do this. It's an interesting image of a, of a leader visiting a place of catastrophe to gain a perspective on, actually, what does it look like on the ground? And sometimes our country's uh, leaders will do that to you know, for political reasons, They could have just stayed in their office and heard the report or seen pictures of it. Most time it's done to gain an accurate perspective of the work that needs to be done. So here's Nehemiah inspecting the work. What does it actually look like on the ground? What needs to be done? He knows that God has put him in the strategic location in Susa. God's favor and blessing was upon him. And in verse 11, what we see is that Nehemiah says even the idea to rebuild the city is not his own. It says there in verse 11 that God put it in his heart to do this for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's view of the sovereignty of God is so expansive, so large, that he even includes his mental capacities. The idea is not even his own. It came from God. His understanding of God's involvement in this world is so expansive. He's prayed, and he could have stayed where he was in Susa. But his understanding of the sovereignty of God freed him up to make plans and investigate. And so he goes. Nehemiah perfectly shows for us how the sovereignty of God frees us to make plans and investigate his work in this world. That's the first thing I want us to see about how these two truths kind of weave together as we see Nehemiah and and what he was doing and his belief in God. How these two truths of the divine sovereignty of God and human action kind of weave together. God's sovereign rule in this world frees us to plan and investigate his work. God has purposely placed you here in Wheaton. Maybe you don't believe that, or maybe you wonder why you're here in Wheaton. But God has purposely placed you here, and he's purposely placed you in your workplace, in your family, on the street that you live on. He's purposely placed you on your sports team or on your son or daughter's sports teams, at your school, wherever you are planted and wherever you are put. God has put you there. And he has work to do in the arenas and the spheres of influence that he has put you in. Your life isn't random. Your life is not a season. No season of your life is, is a waste of time. And so perhaps you've moved here to Wheaton in the past year or so. And you're wondering, what are you doing here? Or perhaps God is, is, is moving you on from your workplace right now and you're, you're looking to see a different job in a different state and you're wondering, why? What is that going to look like? What is that about? Let me encourage you that God is the one who is sovereignly moving you around. Your life is not random. He has work to do in and through you. Or perhaps God is giving you an idea for a specific area of ministry that you have a deep passion for. Perhaps God has put on your heart a particular person or a particular family in your sphere of influence that you say that family is in need. Will you carefully plan and investigate that? Knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that he's put you in the places that he wants you to be, will you plan and investigate his work? You know, it takes guts to move towards need, doesn't it? Pastor Augustine explained that to us last week. It takes getting beyond our own self-focus to move towards need. We're all naturally creatures of comfort, aren't we? we want to build around us a comfortable life and, and make sure everything is okay. So we have to get beyond those desires of fulfilling our selfish, sinful desires for comfort. And sometimes we need to move towards need. You see, when we understand the sovereignty of God... And his action in our lives, we are free to plan, free to investigate where he is at work. When we see a need, we always have a choice, don't we? We can move towards it or we can move away from it. Under the sovereignty of God, he leads not only those decisions, but he also leads our desires and what we want to do. That's the first thing I want us to see, that God's sovereign work in this world frees us to plan and investigate his work. The second thing is in verses 17 and 18. Let me read these verses for us. Nehemiah goes on, and now he's addressing these Jews, and he says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, That we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now it's valuable for us to understand how this story kind of fits together, the different components to it. You see, there was a remnant of Israelites who had survived the exile. And we're living in this province beyond the river. We see that in, in verse 3 of chapter 1. So Nehemiah doesn't go back 750 miles to Babylon to tell those Jews about what's going on. He tells these Jews who are living right outside Jerusalem in this province, and they were probably living in some kind of shanty town that they had created. So this group of Jews is not living in Babylon, they're right there. And it is these Jews that are troubled, these Jews that are ashamed. It's these Jews that Nehemiah addresses after this private investigation of the city. They were the ones who were beaten down, living in shame. And so in verse 17, we see that Nehemiah gives them a clear call in verse 17 to come and build the walls. It's a call to get up and participate with what God is doing, to take up the hammer, to stir the cement, to get dirty, to get sweaty. And to rebuild. But Nehemiah has his work to cut out, to do for him, doesn't he? Whenever there's a group of people that are demoralized or kind of beaten down, how do you motivate a group of people who is in that state? Nehemiah's got some hard work to do to, to get these people to actually get up and build. The text tells us there are at least three things that Nehemiah does to motivate them. The first is in 17. 17. So we see in 17 that he appeals to their sense of identity as God's people. He says, Come let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Why? So that we may no longer suffer derision. The word derision means laughing stock. The nation of Israel, those Jews that are there, had become a laughing stock. They were a joke of a nation. Everyone around them was making fun of them, being ridiculed by Everybody. So Nehemiah appeals to their identity and says to them, let us no longer suffer derision. Let us no longer be the laughingstock of the nations. They are God's unique people, his set-apart people. And if they rebuild the city, they'd be reestablished as God's people in God's place, no longer suffering derision, no longer being laughed at. So he appeals to their sense of identity as God's people in God's place. The second thing he does is in verse 18. He motivates them by telling, telling them how God's hand had been upon him for good. So that's one more way that Nehemiah describes how God had been at work. A sovereignly at work orchestrating these things. So for God's hand to be upon Nehemiah wasn't a heavy burden of like wrath or guilt. It was actually God directing everything like a, like a, a maestro at a symphonic orchestra. The guy up front who's directing all of it, getting this piece together, that piece together, making sure it all fits together. God is the one who's directing all of this, moving pieces around to make something beautiful. He tells them probably of all the events that had happened in the month of Chislev all the way up to the present day. This is how God had been at work. That's how he motivates them. I don't know about you, but for me, one of the highest motivating factors in my life to participate with what God is doing is when I actually see him putting pieces of a puzzle together in a way that is absolutely humanly impossible. We see this a lot of times with our missionaries and uh, of, of support raising and how God opened a door here and he opened a door there. And all of a sudden, all the pieces are lining up together. That's motivating, isn't it? When you see, wow, something happened that only God could do. That's how Nehemiah motivates them. God's hand had been upon him. And so Nehemiah says to them, behold our God. Look what he has done. The third thing he does is at the end of verse 18, he motivates them by telling them all that the king had spoken to him. And so he's appealed to the heavenly realm saying, God has been at work. God's hand has been here. And now he appeals to the human level and says, this is how I know God has been at work. The king's favor has been upon me. The king has made decisions to let me go and rebuild. And you see how these two things are coming together. God was clearly leading through the decisions of the king to let him go. And now Nehemiah says, let us rise up. Let us participate in God's work. Those are all really motivating factors for them, and I hope they're motivating for you. As you see things that are going on in your life, that you would say, God, how are you at work? Let me see your work. And let those things come up so that you can say, I will rise, I will build. We don't know how long Nehemiah's speech actually was, but their resounding response to him is, We will rise. Let let us rise up and build, they said. And so their hearts are revived. They see how God has been at work and, and they're inspired. They want to put their hand to the plow. They want to get after it together with him. And so as God's hand had been upon Nehemiah, the text tells us that they now strengthened their hands for the work, which is probably a reference to the fact that their faith in God grew. They seen God was at work, And now the sovereignty of God had pushed them to participate in what God was doing. And that's the second thing I want us to see, is that that the sovereignty of God pushes us, pushes us to participate with what he is doing. How do those two things come together? God's sovereignty and human responsibility. When we see God at work, we say, I want to move where he's moving. I want to go where he's going. You see, God's sovereignty never undercuts human responsibility. Never undercuts it. Instead, his sovereignty gives us boldness, gives us courage to step out and take bold and risky action for him. You see, when we cognitively understand that God is ruling over the whole realm of creation, extending even to our thought life, That pushes pushes us to deliberate action. We're free to plan. And we're moved to participate with what he's doing. God has called us to be on mission with him in this world. You don't have to question that. You don't have to wonder. Am I supposed to be part of God's mission in this world? You are. If you are called to relationship with him, you are called to be on mission with him. And sometimes that's a call away from comfort. Listen to the way the Bible describes us. The Bible describes us as exiles in this world. Aliens. Sojourners. Strangers. We are citizens of a different land. We belong somewhere else. Our home is not on this earth. And so we don't work to establish an earthly kingdom or just to secure our own comfort, we are working to expand God's eternal kingdom, which at times will mean bold, deliberate action to uncomfortable places. Advancing God's kingdom is not just building a well in the jungles of Africa. Advancing his kingdom is not just working with habitat for humanity or relieving hunger, relieving poverty. Those things are all good things. When we talk about expanding God's kingdom, it means that the word of the gospel is going forth into every corner of the Earth, and that lives are being transformed by that word so that Shalom is being restored. Peace with God and the peace of God. That happens when the gospel goes forward, not when necessarily a well is built both things, but primarily it's about the word of the gospel going forward to our neighbors and to the nations when you and I take bold action to preach that word, to deliver that word. Unfortunately, the book of Nehemiah has often been misused to promote a building campaign. Let me assure you, there's no promotion for a building campaign at the end of my sermon or at the end of this whole series. That's not what Nehemiah is about. And sometimes it's been used to talk about uh, leadership techniques or leadership principles. And there may be some secondary applications there. But Nehemiah is primarily about building our lives on God as we understand his sovereignty in this world and our great privilege of co-laboring with him in his work in this world. And so if you call yourself a Christian, God is calling you to participate with him in building his kingdom in both word and deed. You don't need to question that. It's not just the job of the pastors here at the church to do the work. We all get to participate together in advancing God's fame in this world. And so I think a, a question that we have to ask ourselves is what bold action is God calling you to do? Where are you planning? And where is he calling you to participate. You know, for some of us, it might mean that we we agree to regularly attend our South Wheaton campus. Not out of convenience, but out of conviction for the purpose of evangelism, for the purpose of outreach. For some of us, that will be very uncomfortable to say, I will no longer come here Sunday morning. I will now go on Saturday night at 5 o'clock to Edison Middle School on the south side of Wheaton. That might be uncomfortable for some of us. But perhaps God is calling you at a conviction to do that. Perhaps for some it will mean starting an evangelistic Bible study in your workplace. Bold action. A scary action. Maybe for others it will mean inviting a neighbor into your home who you know is hurting. Or inviting the new mom down the road into your home to encourage her. Maybe for others it will mean finally having that spiritual conversation with the person you see at the gym that you work out every single day, opening up your mouth. You see, God's sovereignty never undercuts our need to plan and to participate and to do our part in advancing God's kingdom. We get the joy of participating with what God is doing under his sovereignty, right where we are, right where he's put you. God's sovereign work in this world pushes us to actively participate with him. It doesn't paralyze us. The third thing to see is in verses 19 to 20. Let me read these for us. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That's the third thing we see here is that these governors of the province here had heard that the people of Israel had decided to rise up and build. And so here were the very first signs of opposition. It's a real opposition that will only increase as the story goes on. But here they're, they're jeering at the Jews. They're despising them. They're questioning their motives. Despite the fact that they had these letters of recommendation from the king, they think they're in rebellion against the king. The question their motives. And Nehemiah's response in, in verse 20 is absolutely incredible. He says to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will rise and build. If there's one way for me to describe it, I would say it's this, in short, back off. Back off. The God of heaven will make us prosper he's going to accomplish his plans to rebuild his people the god of heaven is unstoppable he cannot be stopped and his rebuilding up his people cannot be stopped no matter how much opposition or how many enemies there are that rise up against his work and try to stop it he cannot be stopped These enemies have no right, they have no claim in Israel because they are outsiders. They mock the people of God now, but one day they will be derided and mocked by God. Reminds us of Psalm 2. Listen to the words of Psalm 2 right at the beginning. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. Now listen to how God replies to them. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Enemies of God will rise up and plot against his plans. But he cannot be stopped. Listen, friends. God is at work in this world. Whether you see it or whether you don't see it, whether you believe it or just don't want to believe it at all. God is at work in this world. And those of us that call on Jesus as Lord and Savior, you and I are part of this worldwide movement of God. And not just any God, it's the God of heaven. And he cannot be stomped out. He cannot be stopped, both now or forever. He will not be stopped. The Lord is on the move. He's been on the move for a long time. And his sovereign reign over this world, over this creation, means that what he plans to do is going to happen. It will happen. At the cross of Jesus Christ, it appeared that the enemies of God had won. They murdered Jesus. They killed him. And for a moment in time, it appeared that they would get away with it. But their plans to murder Jesus were part of God's sovereign, unstoppable plan to secure our redemption, our forgiveness, our eternal home. That's part of God's sovereign plan. Enemies rise up, want to destroy Jesus, but he cannot be stopped no matter how much they want to try, even when the people of God are ridiculed and laughed at for their faith, God cannot be stopped. There will be a day when Jesus Christ returns and a return for his bride and we will reign with him forever in glory. The communion table before us this morning reminds us that the death of Jesus Christ secured our greatest need. The victory is Jesus's. It belongs to him. His sacrificial death on the cross secures our eternal security, our eternal home forever. And so as we take communion this morning, let us be reminded that God's sovereign rule in this world means that he cannot be stopped. He wasn't stopped at the cross, and he cannot now be stopped. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are amazed when we think about how you are at work in this world. Too many times, Father, we think that uh, our life is just a set of random activities and a set of events that there's nothing really it's moving towards. Would you expand our view of you? Would you encourage us and inspire us to participate with your work in this world, even in the face of opposition? We thank you for the the table that's before us this morning. Would you remind us once again of the grace that we have in Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen.